We're working through John's gospel, and we beheld his glory. This is part 27. There are so many big texts in John's gospel, not light texts and not simple texts, big texts. The title for this morning's teaching is, Are There Many Ways to Know God or Just One? John 6, 45 to 59. I chose that title because a growing sentiment, even in evangelical churches, is that it really doesn't matter which religion you practice, if you do it sincerely and devoutly, God accepts your worship. You're what they call an anonymous Christian. You don't know that you're participating in the Christian faith, but as you're a devout Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu, as you practice it faithfully, diligently, with a good heart, that God accepts you in that. And that is something that used to be right on the fringe, and now it just creeps more and more into a lot of churches. And so that's what I want to look at. Are there many ways to know God or just one? John 6, 45 to 59. And you need a Bible. Up, up here isn't quite enough. Have something that you pull out, study, underline, your iPhone, your iPad, or even they still make these. If you want to try that as well. John 6, 45. It is written in the prophets, quote, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is the speaker. 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, there's there's a lot of stuff going on in this text. 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You can see where they're going with this. This is creepy. 53, so Jesus said to them, and, and Jesus doesn't lighten up here. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You can see how they're trying to bend their brains around the words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth. 55. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Man. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then these kind of innocuous closing words, 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. I mentioned earlier that where the synoptic gospels describe the Last Supper in quite a bit of detail, the Apostle John never mentioned it. He records the washing of the disciples' feet, but he makes no mention of that last Passover celebration of Jesus with his disciples. Doesn't say a word about it. But chapter 6, we've been studying for a few weeks now. Chapter 6 is John's masterpiece of theology. It's not light. The theology of the cross of Jesus Christ, the redemption supplied through that cross. It's a wonderful but rather deep and complex chapter that we're looking at these weeks. It's work to preach on that, and it's work to listen to it. So we have to work together. But it's weighty. It's important. This isn't light, peppy, fluffy stuff. John drills down deep into the work of Christ, and he calls us to bring our minds along with our hearts to follow him. We should get a clue the nature of Jesus' words by the fact that his own disciples, okay, Jesus' own disciples took offense at what he said. It's in, it's in 60 and 61. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, maybe you're thinking the same thing. Look, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? That's his followers. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were, you ever do this when somebody's preaching? I guess. They were grumbling about this. He said to them, do not take offense at this. Note that. We'll study those words next Sunday. His own disciples didn't take well to his words. And so we need to be careful when we study them. They're not offensive words when they're deeply understood. They're rich. They're nourishing. We're only going to study 14 verses today to break down into manageable portions. Okay, so point number one. With the coming of Jesus Christ, saving knowledge of God is forever Christocentric or Christ-centered. I get that in 45 and 46. It is written in the prophets, this is Jesus speaking, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. It's the only one. He has seen the Father. There's a reason for placing 45 and 46 back to back because they link up a statement with a clarification of the statement. Jesus knows the words in verse 45 could very well be misleading without the addition of 46. So true enough, God has revealed much 
through the Old Testament writings by the prophets. It's written in the prophets. It's recognized that God spoke through prophets. But Jesus, he goes on to clarify, that doesn't mean that people can continue to come to God just through those same prophets alone without thinking through Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of everything the prophets said. So so you and I can't get to God through those prophets all by themselves anymore. That's the important information that Jesus is communicating. The prophets were good, God spoke, but they're not enough anymore. Do you remember how Jesus chastised his listeners for doing just that in 45 to 47? He said, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. He wrote about me. That's what Moses was doing. That's what all the prophets were doing. They were writing about Jesus. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So other texts, other texts reveal this, this religious tendency. It's very common in the world today, and it was then. The same religious tendency to, to look for saving faith elsewhere, writings, books, angels, prophets, voices, looking for saving truth elsewhere while rejecting Jesus Christ. Look what he said to the religious leaders. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Okay? Yet, look, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Well, Pastor Don, didn't God use those prophets to genuinely speak to his people? Didn't he use them to call people to repentance, to call them back to himself? And I would say, yes, yes, he did. But that was then. Jesus hadn't come yet. They had no fulfillment of those prophets' words. That was the fullest revelation they possessed under the old covenant. This is now the promised Lamb of God has come. And so Jesus exposes the use of signs without accepting that to which the signs point. You search the scriptures, but you reject me. But the scriptures are all about me. This makes no sense, Jesus is saying. Here's the key teaching point. With the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, hear this, God no longer accepts approaches to his saving grace outside of Jesus Christ. So with the coming of Christ, the incarnation, God in the flesh, everything has changed. The gate to God narrows. Now Jesus will stand up, John 14, 6, very boldly and say, no no one. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is is the only way available now. Jesus is now the exclusive way, the exclusive truth. 
an exclusive life for lost mankind. The whole New Testament reaffirms those great words. Let me read to you. It's kind of a long text, but I want to read it to you. Acts 17, 22 to 31. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's going to say the same thing Jesus is saying in our text. It just takes a minute to get to it. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. So there's the compliment. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, so these people do worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, do you see the literalness of, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the boundaries of their dwelling place. God did all that. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Here you go. Here you go. The times of ignorance. What, what times is he talking about? Well, you had the prophets. You had all sorts of ideas about religion and people worshiping all sorts of gods and trying to feel their way toward him. Those are the times of ignorance. In times, the times of ignorance got overlooked. There's the big word. But now, so there are these times here, and then there's now. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I know that's a long, involved text. Paul's chief point is that there's this now there. Now, now, these aren't the times of ignorance anymore. It matters now how people think they're going to come to God. There was a time when they could just, verse 27, feel their way toward him like a blind person. Paul clearly says God overlooked, verse 30, those times. But then he says those times of ignorance, that's the word he uses, verse 30. Those times are gone. Times of ignorance are gone. Times of just feeling your way on your own terms with your own worship and your own systems, that's all over now, he says. Why? Why are they over? Well, they're over because Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What ended those former times was the coming and dying. Paul specifically says God gave proof by raising him from the dead. 
Paul says the coming of Jesus Christ ends the times of ignorance. That's really important, church. The coming of Jesus Christ ends the times of ignorance. This is the big change in religious history. You can see it in so many places. Look at these words. Long ago, at, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, that's the same thing. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir to all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you know why the sun rose in the sky this morning? We don't think of it very often. The reason you have day and night and the soil produces and the sun doesn't move, wouldn't it be bad if it just took off and left us? Why does it all work? The text says Jesus. Just his word. I love it. Light, it's morning. <laughs> and it happens. But it doesn't just happen. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So again, again, we're meant to see the transition from the many to the single. In past times, many times, many ways, spoken to us by his son now. And the important first point of this teaching is the apostles in the New Testament, like Paul, the writer of Hebrews, they didn't just make this up. They got it from Jesus himself. This is what Jesus is saying in our text in John 6, 46. Look at it. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So, so that broad road of the prophets described in verse 45 isn't useful except in pointing to Jesus Christ. No one can use other means to bypass Jesus Christ. Not anymore. Notice Notice those words, no one has seen the Father but the Son. Jesus is the only qualified revealer of God. This is the same point the Apostle John was making. Right back at the beginning of his, of his account, in John 1.18, he said, no one has ever seen the Father, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. Watch how Jesus labors to get this concept across over and over again because, because it just seems like more fair if people, as long as they were sincere and wanted to find God, you think that would be enough. I just There's something, there's good diplomacy there. It just seems fair. And so Jesus has to labor over and over again. Look at his conversation with Philip. Here's Jesus talking to Philip. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. Look, and have seen him. Because they saw Jesus. Now, Philip's confused. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It's all I want. Show us the Father. That's enough. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So I'm still reinforcing that foundational teaching point. You you don't have to be right about everything. People can speculate the nature of the millennium and when the rapture takes place and Can God create a stone so big that he can't lift it? And, you know, all sorts of stuff. This, you have to be right on. This, you have to be right on. You have to know it. You have to know it like you know your phone number. You have to be able to explain it. It has to make sense. From the incarnation on, saving knowledge of God is forever locked in the person of Jesus Christ. John Calvin, in not too subtle terms, they weren't subtle back then, thunders these words, quote, accursed then be everything declared to us about God unless it directs us to Christ. You can't just say, don't think this way. Cursed. I think you get his point. Okay, so it leads into the second point. What it means to believe in Jesus and why it's so important. The block of text we're going to look at is John 6, 47 to 58. And, but because there are so many thoughts developed in it, I'm going to break it down into smaller units, okay? But, but here's the idea. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does that mean? And why is it so important? A, only belief in Jesus can bring eternal life. Jesus is pretty clear. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So somehow, this is tied to that. Belief is tied to eternal life. I am the bread of life. So Jesus is now explaining what this believing in him means. He's going to pick this image, bread, because they ate bread in the wilderness. And Jesus is going to play on that image for the next five or six verses. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And here's the important point. They died. And then Jesus says this, talking about himself, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So there's a big difference. In verse 49, Jesus reminds these reminiscent Jews that as great as that miracle was, manna feeding them in the wilderness, Jesus says, I hate to break this to you, but everybody that ate that bread in the wilderness, as wonderful as it was, certainly a miracle. Let me tell you about them. They're all dead, Jesus says. They're all dead. So it's 
pretty obvious that bread didn't give eternal life. This is Jesus' way of repeating what he said in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes. That's that manna that came down. But for food that endures, see, perishes, endures, to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father has set his seal. So the manna in the wilderness, with which these people were so transfixed and familiar, that manna, that's the image Jesus uses to show, here's what it shows. Material pursuits that seem to fill an immediate need can't fulfill the eternal dimension of our beings. That's what he's saying. We can all take that home and use it. Material things, they they claw at our desires and they deceive us with their apparent urgency. Food that perishes is a constant nag in your life and mine. But it isn't where our deepest needs will ever be met. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what our immediate desires so deceitfully promise. Our appetite for Christ will be nourished as the false nagging of our material desires are exposed for what they are. All those people, Jesus says, had their needs supplied day by day by day with this physical food, they're all dead. B. Belief in Jesus rests down on the historically verifiable event of Jesus coming into this world to die, but that has to be constantly reaffirmed and rededicated ever anew. And I want to, I know that's a lot. I want to explain it. Look at 650 and 51. And there's some wording in here that I want you to notice. You need to see the words. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. That's the word I want you to see. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You have to watch for it, but there's just no missing the way Jesus, on purpose, he switches tenses. I tried to show it to you. He is, at the same time, both the bread that comes down, 50, and the bread that came down, 51. What's he doing? We're talking about what it means to believe in Jesus. Living faith needs these two wings to fly. There's an ongoing, constantly renewed, never neglected feeding on the rich fellowship and grace of Jesus Christ. This is the bread that comes down, present tense. The believer doesn't just know about Jesus. He, he, he loves Jesus. He 
worships Jesus. He keeps listening to Jesus. He keeps obeying Jesus. He keeps repenting before Jesus. So the relationship, believing in Jesus means there's this relationship, a living, abiding relationship, like a branch and a vine. The bread constantly comes down from heaven, fresh bread each and every day. See, that's that's what the dailiness of the manna in the wilderness was picturing. The people couldn't just get it once. Please don't miss Jesus' simple point. There's a reason he calls himself 48, the bread of life. We will have communion tonight. Why isn't it enough just to have some scripture read about loving Jesus, serving Jesus? Why do we have to, why do we have to take a little cracker that tastes terrible? Why do we have to take a little cracker and a cup? Why do we have to eat? Why do we have to eat? to think about Christ. Does that make sense? Why do we need to eat anything? Why can't we just know it and agree with it? Eating is an ongoing action. That's what we're proclaiming. You you can't sustain your present existence on the food you ate three weeks ago. Jesus means to emphasize my need to Feed on him. That's those those words that they were so offended at. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's, It's participation is what he's saying. It means something happens when Christ is neglected by professing believers. Something happens. You don't have to deny him. I said neglect him for periods of time. Neglect of Christ betrays the whole idea of Jesus being the bread of life. Neglected food doesn't feed. I need need to learn what it means to partake of Christ every day. Stuff happens, usually unfelt initially, when Christians aren't in the Word, when Christians skip church and don't go regularly. Stuff happens, but they're not aware of it right away because it's a constant feeding constant feeding. He's the bread that comes down. The other thing, the other wing, he's not just the bread that comes down, verse 50, he's the bread that came down, 51. I take that to mean there's a, there's a finished aspect to Christ's provision of life. My my faith doesn't rest down on my own feelings. Anybody notice how they come and go? One service you feel God's presence just touching you, and another you think, is he ever going to quit talking? I want to go to Swiss Chalet. And and feelings, right? They, They do this in all of our lives. And that's why it's so important that our faith rests down beyond our feelings, which are never stable. Thankfully, there's this foundation for my eternal life, and it's rooted in the actual occurrence. He came. We know where he came. We know when he came. People saw him come. They saw him die. They saw him raised from the dead. It's stuff that he did, 
and you can bank on it regardless of how you feel at the moment. It's precious. Unlike a host of prophetic and angelic revelations on which so many of this world's base their faith, the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus, those are verifiable events. C, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? C, belief in Jesus means the complete assimilation of his will and rule into my whole life. We're almost done. John 6, 52 to 58. Here's the troubling words. The Jews disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to them, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, feeds, there's the verb, feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever, he doesn't let go of this. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. There's no denying the gruesomeness of these images. They're supposed to be. Jesus is saying something that he knows they won't be able to ignore, at least. (laughs) They're going to wake up now. Surely he was aware of the distastefulness of the image. Why did he use them? And he used them because there's no better image to convey, listen, the extent to which his life must become my life. That's what belief in Jesus means. In his old commentary on John, Merle Tenney, he captured, talking about these words. Listen to what he said, quote, The metaphor of eating and drinking is the best possible figure that can be employed to express the assimilation of one body by another. The method whereby life is transferred from the eaten to the eater. Although the figure was in itself repulsive, it expressed the meaning of the complete assimilation of Christ into all of the life of the believer. Just as all of the life of the believer is assimilated into that of Christ. I, uh, I had a chicken sandwich last week. But if you had a surgeon here who opened me up, you won't find that sandwich. You won't find it. But there isn't a single part of my body into which that sandwich hasn't gone. Or more accurately, think about this. There isn't a single part of my body that that sandwich hasn't become. That's how it works. That sandwich is now my hair, my eyesight, my hearing, my fingers, my lungs that breathe. 
That's where that sandwich went. It turned into me. Here's what I'm saying. If you can find big chunks of your present thinking where Jesus doesn't dominate, if you can find big slices of the values of your life that are shaped more by the culture than the lordship of Jesus, then then you need to hear these hard verses on eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It becomes you. It's you. Last point, and it's just a one-pager, so relax. Point number three. Graciously, Jesus made all his teaching and his work highly verifiable. I mentioned this, the very end of that complicated text. You have this one kind of innocent-looking sentence. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. What's that about? Why does that little detail matter? Well, it matters because this is really demanding teaching. Those words mean there's a time and a place where Jesus said these things. You could hear it with your ears. You could see it. It's not mystical. This account does not open up with the words once upon a time. Because Jesus took great pride in the fact that he hadn't established some secret cult. Right at the end of his life, this little verse was still hot on his mind. Look at this. This is at the end of Jesus' life. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Look at Jesus' answer. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues. And in the temple, where all the Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. You know what that means? It means Jesus wants the whole world to be able to look at everything he said and to know it was true. This wasn't some private revelation that came to Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy. This was Jesus saying, I said this in front of all of you. You were there. You heard my words. Here's where I did it. Here's when I did it. Here's what I said. And he did that, and it's recorded. So in a service like this, in 2023, you're here. You need to know Jesus is trustworthy in what he says about eternal life. You're committing your life to him. You can bank on it. He says, I didn't do this in a corner. I did it in front of everyone. And he died and he rose again in front of everyone. Paul says, 500 witnesses saw the risen Christ. That's why I love Jesus. That's why I love his church. That's why I love his word. The older I get, the more it means to me. It means something to me. You start to sense your own mortality. Anybody else in that camp? You get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, you go, gee whiz, I thought I was going to live forever. What in the world's happening here? I'm more sure about Jesus than I've ever been in my whole life. And I want you to be too. Let's pray. 